So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip, 6-1 to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's see, one hit. That's all we got, one goddamn hit. You can't say goddamn on the air. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Good morning and welcome to episode 395 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index from BaseballReference.com. Uh, we're joined today by Susan Patron, who writes about the Indians for uh, its pronounced Lajaway, which is on the ESPN Sweet Spot Network. Uh, and in about 20 minutes, Nick will be talking to Jordan Bastian from MLB.com. Ben Lindbergh's also here. Susan, how are you? I am great. Thank you very much for having me on. So um, there's uh, one of Bill James' sort of more famous ideas is the plexiglass principle, which says that if a team improves by a whole lot in one year, uh, they generally uh, regress some the next year, that um, that there's usually a kind of, I don't know, hangover effect is the right way to describe it, but they, they don't generally keep going upward. Uh, so from that perspective, uh, should the Indians be feeling kind of pessimistic right now? Um, I don't think pessimistic. Uh, we have very high expectations. I don't know that they'll go to 92 wins again. And it's hard talking as a, as a longtime fan who's been disappointed so many times that um, we always have very guarded optimism. Um, I could see him going to 92 wins again. I think that could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, just because... They've got a lot of momentum. They've got the they have a, a really great core of players, you know. And then they've signed, you know, Brantley to a long term deal. We've got Santana to a long term deal. Kipnis is they're in talks with that for a long term. You know, we have Bourne and Swisher on long term deals. There's there's a really nice core, and they're fixing the pieces parts. So and, I don't know. Yeah. I think if they if they bounce down. I don't think it would be by more than a couple of wins. So one of the uh, one of one of the great things about your essay in the VP Annual is that um, you wrote about the Indians um, without focusing sort of on on the players because the players come and go. They're 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 temporary, right? But yeah. you wrote sort of about the uh, the foundations of their success last year and the structural things that went into that, and specifically their their general manager and front office, uh, their manager Terry Francona. And their pitching coach Mickey Callaway, and I wanted yeah. to ask you about Callaway because uh, pitching coaches are—they um, seem to be one of those areas of a team that it's hard to to know how much uh, credit to give them. But it's it's an area where we generally, I think, feel like there can be a big impact made. Maybe maybe much more so than with a hitting coach. And Callaway had great success with the pitching staff last year. So what? Uh, where did Callaway come from? Uh, what's his background, and does he have um, does he have a style? Well, I had a chance to talk to him briefly um, when I was writing the essay, and he he and as I said, and as I wrote, he's the he that the best thing he said that he thought he did was to listen, and it seems like he has a talent for helping players get out of their own way, if that makes any sense. Um, it, uh, when I chatted with him, he was just you know one of those people that you immediately feel at ease with and comfortable talking to. And I I could see how players would respond to that that you, they would feel like okay I could this guy is not going to tell me what to do he's going to listen to what is 
what my problems are and kind of help them, I don't know, listen to themselves. And I think that's probably his strength, that, that he's like, he's coaching by not coaching. And uh, he did so many great things last year, with, especially with uh, Jimenez and, and Kazmir, and I think he's got his work cut out for him this year with uh, Pastrana coming back and Josh Tomlin coming back from uh, Tommy John and the never-ending saga of Carlos Carrasco um, and, and Trevor Bauer. He's got a lot of uh, maybe not fixing but tweaking to do. Is his is his success uh, last year with all the pitchers that you just mentioned and you talked about in your essay? Is that enough for you to sort of buy in that it's a repeatable skill? Because you know, in the past, we've seen some either hitting coaches or pitching coaches get a reputation as miracle workers. Maybe you know, maybe they're just at the right place at the right time when guys happen mm-hmm. to figure something out, and then it's not necessarily something they can do year after year. Is that just sort of a case where we, we have to wait and see? I, th- I think you do. But, again, in, in, in speaking to him, he, you get the feeling like he's an old friend. And I, I, can't, I can't see how a player wouldn't respond to that, to that warmth. And that's like, okay, because a good, I mean, a good coach, you've got to trust him. And I could see where a player would really trust this guy. And if you, if you don't trust the guy who's coaching you, then – you know, nothing's going to work. And, I mean, Callaway's pretty young. Uh, what is he, like 38? Mm-hmm. He's a young guy. I believe last year was his first year coaching in the majors. And um, maybe that fresh perspective helped. Um, you know, obviously some of the bloom will have worn off. But I think he I think he can do it again. I don't know that there are any, like, huge miracles to work like last year. But um, I think he can do it again, and that's, that is going to be a huge part of 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 the 2014 success. Yeah, he is he is really young and he doesn't have much experience. The Indians hired him uh, to be a minor league coach, I think, three years before he became a, yeah. a major league coach. Um, and you know, three sort of three of the really great miracles of last season were under his watch, and I'm trying to decide which is the most miraculous. Ubaldo going from April to September, or Scott Casimir going from nowhere to, you know, a legitimate starter. But I think that the one that most people are kind of most interested in right now is is Danny Salazar, um, who is like the trendy fantasy pick uh, this 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 winter, this spring, I guess. And who, um, for a piece that I'm doing right now, I'm looking at Pakoda projections from last year and this year, and I think he has the biggest difference between last year's Pakoda proje- projection and, and this year's. So, um, can you just tell us about Salazar and like how you feel about his ability to uh, to repeat or to you know get better? Oh, I feel like the sky's the limit for him. I mean, if you know, he was kind of on the radar, and the fact that he t- kind of came up and just hit it. Right out, you know, kind of hit it right out of the gate, and didn't seem to have that difficult, you know, adjustment period. Is I think this guy's. I, I mean, I know that this guy's the limit, but I, I could see him doing it again. He just, he just seemed so composed on the mound and didn't get ruffled and and stayed and stayed cool. And that's, I think that's what you need to do. Where you just, if you make a mistake, you keep going. You fix it and keep going. And um the mistake when he did make a mistake he didn't totally blow the rest of the inning you know he's pretty much slated fourth in the rotation 
and um, I I can see him I can see him making like you know twenty five solid starts or even more. I hope they don't you know limit his his innings too much, and I hope they don't blow out his arm. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's always the worry with you know with these really young guys who can throw that hard is that you they feel like they're invincible and they look invincible and I hope they they. I hope he doesn't overdo it. So that sort of leads into my next question, which is about okay. uh, where where the innings are going to come from, because there there are quite a few innings, it seems like, to replace just comparing the, the present roster to last year's with the departures yeah. of Jimenez and Casimir and in the bullpen, guys like Matt Albers and Joe Smith and Chris Perez. Uh, so part of that is more Salazar, but uh, what else should should Indians fans be looking forward to as far as who's going to step in to, to fill those innings? Well, I I think that we will see more starts out of McAllister and Kluber. Mm-hmm. They both had you know funky little finger in- injuries last year, um, which you know took them out of the rotation for a few weeks each. Um, so we'll definitely we'll get more starts out of them. That'll take some innings. And between I think Carrasco and and Tomlin. Um, I think they can make up those 140 innings that we're losing from uh, Jimenez and, and Kashmir. Mm. I would say probably Carrasco would be the number five guy. He seems to be, you know, the favorite, the running favorite. But until, uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to um, watch the uh, or listen to the game this afternoon mm-hmm. um, to see how Bauer's doing. And um, it's, I think it's still open. But I, there are a lot of arms out there. They'll find the arms to, to take those innings. And do you think that uh, that Bauer could be Callaway's next fix? Are you expecting that? Or are you expecting more more struggles I ahead? I don't or? know if he has to be fixed. You know, he's he's just a really young guy. And if, if he can get it over in the zone, he he can do it. Yeah, I, I got the chance to see him pitch. Uh, he started against the Phillies. I think it was like his second start and his first one at home. And, you know, he's really fun to watch. There's a lot of movement on that ball, and it's just, he's just a really fun guy to watch. Um, whether or not he's ready, who knows? I mean, he, when, with that, with the, with the shoe trade, when we got Bauer, I was like, oh, wow, yay, Bauer. Um, but you got to remember, he's only like 22 or 23. Um, he's still a young guy, so he's still coming along. And I, Perhaps they perhaps they rushed him. They gave him a couple of opportunities last year, and he'll he'll come along. And if it's not this season, then 2015, he'll you know he'll he'll be in the rotation. It's he's got some time. Um, if, if I told you that he pitched one inning today, and in that one inning he walked two batters, would your answer change? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, I think that he will. I think we'll probably see him maybe mid-season, and I, I'm, I would think that they'd bring him up and give him a couple of shots, you know, a couple of, start, of starts. Mm-hmm. And um, but I, my my gut says we probably wouldn't see him in the rotation, you know, as a regular part of the rotation until uh, like 2015, or maybe the end of of this season if he does really well in Triple in A. And switching to position players, what uh, I guess the maybe the Bauer equivalent there, or sort of, is, is Lonnie Chisenhall, at least in terms of uncertainty. Uh, what what do you expect out of him, and how do you see the the Carlos Santana position switch playing into his future? 
you know, the way Francona moves those guys around, mm-hmm. I could see, you know, Santana and Chisenhall platooning a third. Um, I had so I had such high hopes for Lonnie Chisenhall, and I don't want to think that he's a quad A player. I really don't, and I don't know. I'm not sure what it is with him that he just can't quite get it together at the major league level. Um, but perhaps he's not an everyday player, and perhaps platooning at third is our is our uh, our answer. Um, that certainly seems to be the way they're going. And I know Francona likes guys who can do more than one thing. And if it gets him out from behind the plate and gives him a little break, that's great. And, you know, but the fact that we have Santana to go to third and catcher and maybe even at first once in a while, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I, wish I, I wish I could figure out what was wrong with Lonnie Chismel because I don't think Lonnie even knows. Yeah, and <laughs> um, last year he did have... Uh, you know, one of the lowest BABIPs in in the game. So there's, I guess there's maybe some reason for hope there. Although, um, you know, who knows if, who knows whether that's just part of his skill set at this point. Are you surprised that Santana, I mean, when Santana kind of announced that he was going to be working on third base in the Dominican Republic, it almost sort of sounded like a lark. He's not a guy that is generally thought of as being particularly agile to begin with. Um, So are you surprised that it's, that it's actually come this far and, Based on like sort of how the Indians talk about it, um, is this a trial for spring, or is this really something that they seem to think is realistic already, and it's just about you know kind of getting him there uh, in the next few weeks? Um, my guess is they're probably going to have a, a more of a wait and see and see how he does in spring training. I know that he played third in the minors a long, long time ago, so it wasn't completely out of the blue. You know, he put he's. He put in the time. He played winter ball, playing third, and I mean, bless him for taking on a really strange position shift. I never thought of him as particularly agile, although I have seen him play, make some plays at first, and I watch him run sometimes. I go, wow, he's faster than I thought. So perhaps you know, giving him the opportunity to to stretch himself a little bit, I, he might be able to pull it off. Um, I have no doubt that Francona would totally pull him if he completely fails, and I don't think he would completely fail. Um, my Probably my biggest fear is that we have Santana and Chisholm at third, and they only are both doing a mediocre job, and then what do you do? Because <laughs> you, you need something a little bit better, but you probably go with Santana only because he has the better bat and the more consistent bat, and you want to keep him in the lineup as much as you can. Uh, you wrote in your essay about how the Indians led the league in the the percentage of plate appearances taken with the platoon advantage. Is that yes. do you credit that uh, more to roster st- construction to Antonetti for putting the pieces together, or to Francona for being con- being willing to consider using those pieces in in interesting ways? Or how do you is it just a collaborative think- effort there? I think it's Francona. I mean, I think Antonetti said, okay, these are the best guys that I can afford and the best talent that we can afford. And then Francona said, well, you know what? This is the best arrangement of that talent on this particular day. And the fact that he did that consistently, pretty consistently, all through the, you know, through 162 games was pretty darn impressive. Um, I, 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 I would have to give the credit to Francona on that one. And I hope to see more of it. He's, you know, there's nothing that says that you can't that 
you know, your right fielder is your right fielder forever. There's nothing set in, set in stone. Obviously, Santana is a, as an example of you can switch, and sometimes you need to. You, sometimes you need to switch them up. Um, so I would give the credit to uh, Francona on that one, and I would look to. I would look for just as much, if not more, platooning this year. Mm-hmm. That seems to be his thing. If it's working, I don't think he was going to mess with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, would you? What do you foresee as far as the the free agents or guys who are entering their walk years, like Masterson and, and Cabrera? Would you expect an extension to be done for for either one or two of those guys? Is a trade still a possibility with Lindor coming along, or will one maybe just walk at the end of the year? Um, I I mean this is hard because I I really love Justin Masterson, and I mean I was glad that he, he's got signed a one year contract. I was really really hoping that we could sign him to more. He doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who's, you know, totally made it, motivated by the paycheck. Um, I mean, if I had to choose between the two of them, I'd say do whatever you can to sign Masterson long term. Sometimes with Cabrera, you, watching them, watching him as a fan, you sometimes get the feeling that he's phoning it in, or he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't always care as passionately as you would hope. And. I think that if you know if they're going to trade one, at least as far as like who they love more, they'd probably keep Masterson and trade Cabrera. And I think they could get a lot for him. And I would hate to see him trade Masterson while they still have him under contract, but I could see why they might need to do that in order to get something for him because uh, we only have one more year of him now. I have a feeling that they will do whatever they can to hold on to Masterson unless it becomes, you know, totally... He'll not, he will not sign an extension, and then I could see them trading him before his contract that one year is up. Uh, so uh, one last thing. Um, last year, the Indians made the playoffs. They also drew uh, 1.57 million fans, which is 100,000 fewer than the Astros, and only 60,000 more than the Rays, who are, you know... Yeah, notoriously... Like, yeah, exactly. So uh, their, their attendance actually dropped last year in a, in a winning season, in their first winning season in, in quite some time. Um, and, you know, it's 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 Cleveland. It's it's a it's a city that's, you know, has some economic issues. The TV contract is not quite as bad as some TV contracts are, but it's definitely in the in the lower tier. So uh, as pessimistic as this question sounds, uh, will there be a baseball team in Cleveland in 20 years? You know, like um I saw that just today the in- Indians introduced a bunch of new initiatives for the season, including like uh, you know these kids value tickets and a promo pass. So they're really doing. It seems like they're really doing their best to make a lot of really affordable ticket options. And I think if push came to shove, the Cleveland would figure out a way to keep them here. I I, I can't imagine the city ever letting any of their major league sports teams go and with the city with the the team's history here it may take a uh you know a, a wake-up call um you know what some people call you know the come to jesus moment but i i could see yes we will have one in 20 years i i can't see the city totally failing on that one it may be a uh you know an 11th hour save so you already uh, said that you could see this being something close to a, a 90 win team. Uh, is that a playoff team? Would you say? God, you know, it depends on how the Tigers do. It is. I think people forget we really only finished one game behind the t- the Tigers. 
when, you know, we couldn't beat them to save our lives. Um, I think that we'll be a wild card contender again. Um, I, I, I don't see us winning the division. I, I, I could see us getting the wild card and hopefully making it at least past the wild card. But beyond that, if we, uh, if we make a, a, a re- I think we can make a respectable showing. I think we can win the wild card day- game and that might be it. All right. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, you can all follow Susan at Susan Patron. You can find her writing at susanpatron.com and uh, her Indians writing at, it's pronounced Lajaway, uh, the Indians sweet spot blog. So thank you. Thanks, Susan. Thank you very much for having me. And don't come make my house because I said they're not going to win the World Series. <laughs> we won't. No, no, nobody would. No, nobody would ever. Dude, that's uh, that's just that's outside of the realm of human behavior. So I think you're safe. <laughs> uh, so please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to baseballreference.com. Subscribe to the Play Index. Use the coupon code GP to get a six dollar discount on a one year subscription. And now stay tuned for Nick, who will talk to Jordan Bastian from MLB.com. Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm here with Jordan Bastian of MLB.com. How's it going? It's going good, man. Just, uh, you know, getting into the, uh, settling in here with games starting up, you know, watch the workouts with these Indians for the last couple weeks, and I think everybody's ready to kind of get these games started. It's a fun time. Last year was a really exciting and surprising year for the Tribe. They won 92 games, made it to the wild card, where the wild card game where they were shut out by the Rays. Terry Francona was a big part of the club's turnaround, with player after player, after player praising his clubhouse presence. What is the atmosphere at? How is the atmosphere at camp different than last year? Yeah, I think what's been different, noticeably different this year, is that from day one, uh, I mean, you could tell this group was already comfortable and, and ready to go. I think last year there was such a high rate of turnover uh, from the leadership structure with Francona coming in and a new coaching staff uh, to, you know, some very important guys on the roster, you know, whether it's Nick Swisher, Michael Bourne, you know, you had Scott Kasner come in, Jason Giambi. I think they made over 50 transactions uh, two off-seasons ago. So, I mean, it was a pretty pretty new clubhouse last year. And even though there's a lot of outgoing personalities, you could tell you know, even a guy like Swisher wanted to take some time, get to know people before he really let loose. Day one this year, Swisher's driving through the clubhouse on a scooter. So, I mean, it was like, you know, it's, it's, I think right now that, that kind of is what stands out is there wasn't this period of introduction. Uh, there was a, a group that, you know, kind of came back with that uh, memory of what they went through last year. And while there are some new guys, they're more comp- complementary uh, pieces to the roster, whether it's David Murphy, you know, out in the outfield, or John Axford in the bullpen, and some uh, and a lot of NRI, non-roster guys, you know, coming in to compete for a lot of spots. Yeah, Giambi and Swisher really seemed to shape that clubhouse last year. Yeah, they did, you know, and I think in in a couple of different ways. I think Swisher was key into kind of changing the culture of the clubhouse where, you know, the team went through such a tumultuous uh, stretch in the second half of the 2012 season. You know, obviously there was turnover at the end there. Manny Acta was let go, you know, and they decided that they really had to kind of not turn the page, but 
kind of do a 180 and dramatically change the culture without breaking apart what they thought was a very promising young core, guys like Michael Brantley, Jason Kipnis. But I think what Swisher did was he really brought kind of this energy to the room to a team that really needed energy and needed fun after what it had gone through. I think it was a really welcomed addition. Uh, and Jason Giambi, you know, he's brought this veteran savvy and veteran leadership uh, that really wasn't there. You know, I think he's a guy that, you know, as much as we all like to crunch numbers, and, you know, you can't go anywhere in baseball, you know, write any story without having a number in it. There are things that Giambi brings that you can't quantify, you know, and you saw it, whether it was him calling team meetings uh, instead of Francona, you know, or him, you know, pulling up a chair next to a young guy and talking to him. There isn't a thing in the game that Giambi hasn't been through, good or bad, you know, and I think that has uh, been a big part. We've seen it already this spring. You know, there's been a couple of live BP sessions where, you know, you saw Josh Altman was tipping pitches during a live BP session. He, you know, stopped it and let him know what was going on. Uh, you know, you let Aaron Harang know about something mechanically that was wrong. So we were joking around that he's also doubling as a pitching coach right now, too. So, you know, he's in camp as a non-roster guy, but, uh, you know, Terry Francona really loves what he brings to the clubhouse. And one thing that he mentions a lot, and I, which I agree with, is there are things that a manager can say to a player uh, and, and other things that is more effective with a veteran teammate mm-hmm. that says to a player. And I, and I think that's one element that Giambi brought to the club out. Well, you really got the best world, best of both worlds with him last year because before he got signed by the Indians, he was interviewing for some coaching jobs. Yeah, he was actually interviewed uh, for the managing the manager, job with yeah. the Rockies. Yeah, and he came pretty close to getting it. Um, he was fine with Walt Weiss taking that job. And, you know, I don't think he was – I mean, obviously, he wasn't really ready or convinced that he was ready to call it a career. And he really embraced that part-time role with the Rockies, you know, learned uh, to just kind of uh, know that he's not going to get the high batting average, he's not going to get the fun of a bat, but really uh, know what his role is and succeed at it. And I think if you look – Beyond the batting average, which was around 190 or something last year with the Indians, you know, on the surface that looks pretty bad. But when you look at his numbers in pinch hitting situations or his numbers in the ninth inning, you know, really when he was used uh, in those situations, uh, he was a pretty, you know, whether or not you believe in clutch, he was a clutch performer. Swisher and Boren were the two big free agent signings last winter. Both had somewhat disappointing seasons. Swisher's power fell while he battled a sh- shoulder injury, and Bourne had issues mm-hmm. with plate discipline and then had low sto- a pretty low stolen base success rate. Um, Bourne injured his hamstring during the wildcard game, then had surgery a couple weeks ago. Swisher avoided having surgery this offseason. Uh, how are those two guys looking going into camp? Well, yeah, Bourne had the surgery pretty quick at the start of the yeah. offseason, so he's, he's 100% right now. Uh, you know, and Swisher, you know, he jokes around that going home and playing Mr. Mom and, you know, holding his baby daughter kind of strengthened his shoulder. You know, so I, all, all kidding aside, I think we were all, everyone with the Indians was relieved that he didn't have to have surgery because through August, the way his offense was kind of nosediving, it kind of seemed like this was kind of hanging over his head. And then he turned in a really strong September and kind of answered some questions along those lines that threw you know, just the maintenance and, and rehab and, and kind of different uh, exercises he was pretty diligent with, you know, that he was going to be fine. And I think that's what ended up happening with him. In terms of bouncing back, uh, I think Swisher is a pretty strong bounce-back candidate. If you look at his track record 
every year. I mean, he's he's been one of the most consistent hitters in the game, with the exception of you know one year with the White Sox and last year with the Indians. Um, and I think last year he really downplayed that shoulder, but I do think it affected his offense a lot. So you know, I think if you just look at the injury and how much it played, he looks like a pretty strong bounce back candidate. And really, it, it, aside from the batting average. Other numbers were pretty much in line with his career. If you look mm-hmm. at home runs, doubles, you know, walks, things like that. So I think it, it's looking good for a bounce back for him. As for Bourne, I mean, he's kind of been trending downward for the last couple of years. Uh, he cited the switch to the American League uh, for playing a role in his drop in stolen bases and success rate on the bases. And he had a couple injuries through the year, hand injury earlier in the year, hamstring late. You know, so there were some issues that could have played a role as well. But you know, so I think some of the trends don't look as good with Michael Bourne. I think this is going to be a big year for him to kind of uh, support what he has said was behind uh, the struggles last season to kind of show that he was worth the kind of contract they gave him and you know, things like that. He's definitely been a welcome part to the lineup. You know, they went many years without a, a true leadoff hitter, uh, so that was a welcome addition, kind of got things in order lineup-wise and a great addition to the clubhouse as well, along with the other guys that brought. But I think they were anticipating a little more uh, of an impact on the bases. I think that's what he's pretty motivated to show that he can bring it back again this season. One thing that really stood out was his walk rate last year. He had, in five seasons before, had a walk rate of at least 9%. In 2012 with the Braves, that was at 10% career high. Last year, just just 7%. So um, is is he going to be working on on his plate discipline and not chasing pitches out of the zone? Yeah, exactly. When I when I was generalizing that he was trending downward, that's kind of the, one of the things I was uh, referring to. You know, it was that walk rate and the K rate went up as well. Mm-hmm. I think he's pretty well aware of that. And I think there is something to be said um, for the uh, guy who signs a big deal, starts struggling, and starts chasing, you know, mm-hmm. trying to go three three for one instead of one for three, as cliche as that sounds. I, I do think there is that, that mental side of the game. I think that did play a role with him um, last season. You know, so I think, again, this is going to be a big year for him to show that maybe last year was an aberration and not a continuation of a trend, you know, and kind of show that he can get back to those numbers and percentages and rates that you know, we were accustomed to seeing in the, in the three, four, or five years prior to last season. Are they committed to keeping him in the leadoff spot? Last year, having a 316 on-base percentage out of the leadoff spot wasn't really, didn't really work too well for them. Yeah, you know, I think they are. They're committed to have him in the leadoff spot. There's not really another guy who stands out. You know, a guy who filled that role prior to Michael Bourne was Michael Brantley. Um, but Francona really valued having a guy with such a high contact rate like Michael Brantley. He valued him as kind of a protection hitter where he's, he's not going to hit for power, but he's always going to hit good pitching, put the ball in play, um, hit for good, uh, hit well and in uh, scoring position situations, things like that, which he did extremely well last year. Yeah. He likes having he likes having him as a guy who can bounce up and down the order and kind of keep things in order. Yeah, Brantley is a nice guy to come up with guys on base because he just puts the ball in play and really makes things happen. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so Trevor Bauer has been reworking his mechanics after a disastrous 2013 season in AAA in the majors. There's been some positive buzz from the coaching staff about his improvements this spring. We're recording this on Tuesday night. By the time it airs on Thursday morning, he'll have pitched in the Tribe's Cactus League Mm -hmm. opener, so the fans will have gotten a chance to see him. What have you heard and seen so far, and what have they been focusing on helping him change? Well, for starters, I can tell you that from talking to Trevor Bauer, 
he seems much more at ease and much more comfortable this spring than he did last spring. Uh, so I think that's an important thing. You know, he's he actually mentioned that this is the first time he's come back to uh, the same team in a big league camp for the second year in a row. You know, and he feels a lot more comfortable. And he also last spring was beginning this this undertaking of what the Indians have admittedly said was, you know, a little more involved uh, than they maybe realized at the time that they acquired him. You know, he what he went set out to do was kind of re, redo his lower half mechanics to guard against the type of groin injury that he suffered with D-backs. Mm-hmm. He implemented some changes there. With his upper half now over the winter, he really focused on getting his lead arm up higher to get a little more uh, downward movement straight to the plate. You know, and going back a little more to his UCL, UCLA days. So what the pitching coach has said he's seeing right now is kind of a hybrid between what he was trying to do last year and what he's done in the past. Uh, through uh, live BP sessions, I mean, with my untrained eye, I can tell you that he looks far less violent in the, through his yeah. delivery as he did last spring. Um, I think that is what uh, a fan watching would, would think is pretty noticeable if they watched video from last year to this year. So I think it's going to be important, while it's just one inning uh, for his first start, to kind of see how hitters are reacting because his walk rate soared, his strikeout rate dropped, you know, and he was a mess last year. And all the talk has been that the statistical line last year can't be looked at in a vacuum because it was a year of him really working on altering mechanics and not necessarily focusing on results on the field. So this is going to be a huge year for him kind of reestablishing himself as a top pitching prospect and a core piece for this team going forward, um, if that was the case last year. And that's why, you know, all the numbers across the board really uh, dropped off. He'll be competing for the fifth starter role with a few guys, Sean Markham, Carlos Carrasco, Josh Tomlin, all in the mix. Uh, what are they going to do with the three guys who don't make the rotation? Carrasco showed some potential as a reliever late last season after getting knocked out of the rotation, but Markham and, Tom, Markham and Tomlin don't really have this sort of profiles that translate well to bullpen work. Right. Well, I think what they've stressed with Sean Markham, who's a non-roster guy, is that opening day is that art it's such an artificial end date mm-hmm. and he's coming back from such a unique injury you know and had surgery to to alleviate the thoracic outlet syndrome so he he's kind of not while he is competing you know he's a little bit behind the rest of the pitchers uh, early on in camp and, and I'm not sure um that he would not you know ex- I think he would probably accept a trip to the minor leagues to open the year if that became the case. Carlos Carrasco's out of minor league options, so they've said one way or the other he's going to be on the pitching staff. So that gives him a lot of wiggle room or benefit of the doubt. You know, so he might be the front runner for that fifth spot. But as you said, you know, he showed this uh, different mentality and a relief role was really aggressive and they really liked it. So if they think of another guy like, let's say a non-roster guy like Aaron Harang, who's very, he's proven to be durable, you know, maybe they like him and his veteran presence in a fifth spot. You can move Carrasco to the bullpen. They've also talked about Josh Tomlin as a bullpen candidate. He spent some time there uh, last season when he was coming back from Tommy John, albeit it's a very, very, very small sample size. Um, but he uh, he could be a long release type option as well. At the same time, Francona has stressed that he doesn't need a long reliever, and Josh Tomlin has an option. So you could send him to get regular work at AAA and things like that. And Bauer, you know, given what he's coming back from in terms of the mechanical adjustments. You know, Francona has come out right away and said, while they think he's going to be a big part of their future and help them win, you know, and I'm basically quoting him here is, 
It may not be in April. It may not be in May. It may not be in June, but at some point. And when a manager starts saying that right away, it kind of, you know, lets you know that he may not be at the top of the food chain when it comes to the competition for the last rotation spot. So if I had to do a pecking order at the moment, I might put Carrasco at the top of the list just because of the option situation. And I might put a veteran guy like Harang right there with Tomlin, you know, as the next two guys, just based on the durability of Harang, who's averaged about 180 innings over the past decade. And a guy like Tomlin, who has had success in the major leagues, you know, and is coming back from Tommy John now, fully healthy, and a guy that they want to see what he can do. At the top of the rotation, Justin Masterson really stepped things up last year. He continued to have a high ground ball rate and then struck out a lot more guys than he used to, um, thanks to his slider being really effective with two strikes. How was he able to make that happen? Mm-hmm. Was it good location, the way he set up the pitcher, mix a, a mix of different things? You know, he talks so much about checkpoints in his delivery. Uh, and I think that was, again, just what was really big for him with that slider. Um, and also, I mean, he's a guy that if you look at his delivery, it's such an unorthodox delivery that I think there's going to be uh, some ebb and flow in terms of his success. There's going to be some days where, you know, that sinker just doesn't dart down as much or that slider just doesn't doesn't slide as much. You know, I think that's what you've seen over the last four years. You know, it's kind of this up and down, up and down, up and down with him. Last year, he really seemed to put it together. And so they're, what the Indians are really wanting to see now is to see him do it in consecutive seasons. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, as they talk through long-term discussions and compare to Homer Bailey and the deal he got and things like that, and, you know, as they, you know, were threatening to go to arbitration and, and, and all that situation, I think that's a big part of, the Indian side of things is this is a guy who put it together last year, but has been very, very uh, sporadic in terms of results over the over the whole course of a full season. So this is going to be a big year for him. They really like his leadership. They really like his durability. They like his uh, selflessness. You saw him take that relief role down the stretch. You know, he could have held out and said, you know, I want to just come back as a starter for our playoff. You know, in the playoffs, if we make a playoffs and things like that. Instead, he he took on that relief role and. It'll really help them out. Help them out. So, you know, again, it's it's really with his delivery, it's hard to pinpoint one thing mechanically that maybe he did last year, uh, just because there's so many moving parts, and you know, it's it's rare to see a guy who throws with the with the exact mm-hmm. style that he does. Yeah, and um, because of that low arm slot, he's had a lot of trouble with lefties every now and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a that's been a big issue. And what he always says about that is just if he gets enough righties out, the damage he does against lefties will kind of be offset. And that's actually, I mean, I think that's actually a good approach. So, you know, if he can stay extremely strong against those right-handed hitters, the damage that he's going to inevitably give up uh, to left-handed hitters can kind of be countered uh, to a certain extent. Danny Salazar lit up the majors last year in his debut. While he only pitched 52 major league innings, he finished the year first among all major league starters in swinging rate on fastballs, and his splitter was third Mm -hmm. among all major league starters in the same category. He struggled to use his fastball effectively low in the zone. He gave up a few too many homers as a result of leaving that pitch up and over the plate. The most emblematic example of this came in August when he in the second start of the year, he struck out Miguel Cabrera three times in a row, and then in the oh, fourth yeah. at, and all of Cleveland <laughs> remembers that one. <laughs> and then in the fourth at bat, gave up a game-tying home run to Cabrera. Uh, how can 
Salazar repeat his stellar performance last year over a full major league season? First of all, on that game, man, I mean, that was like, if you want to know something about Miguel Cabrera and kind of the cat and mouse games that he plays, look at how many pitches he just stood there and watched yeah. in those first three at-bats, and then look at how he attacked the first pitch that fourth at-bat. It was, I mean, it really was like a, a, a schooling of Salazar into what a what a uh, elite big league hitter can do, you know. But as far as Salazar specifically, uh, one thing he has been working on over the winter and this spring um, is is getting that lead arm higher uh, to kind of create that up and down uh, kind of downward action. Because you know, as you know, if, if it's a little lower with the lead arm, you can create that side to side, or you know, you can tend to you know pull it or. You know, if you don't get it up high enough, there, there's the elevation problem. So that's something that he's working on, you know, and he's doing early in camp. He he's a little he's a little behind the rest of the pitchers, not because there's anything wrong with him, um, but because they're protecting that powerful arm. Uh, he threw 145 innings, I believe, between the minors and majors last year. So now, if they're looking at him for a full season, hoping for 180, 200 innings, those is a guy that they really need to be cautious with. Uh, it's been. I think four years since it's Tommy John, but you know he's been handled with kids' gloves, and the same has been happening early on this spring. So, but that's kind of one of the mechanical things he's doing with that lead arm. You know, and they really think that this is going to be a guy who is going to have the potential to take off and give them uh, the kind of results that will ease uh, the fact that they lost so many innings between letting Scott Casimir and Ubaldo Jimenez, you know, go via free agency. Yeah, and in past years, um, his slider had been rated above his splitter, and then last year his splitter was much better than his slider. If he could develop that slider into a plus pitch, he'd be really scary to face. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's something he's working on. Uh, I think that's something that, you know, again, as as he gets further removed from the Tommy John and has more and more time with, uh, you know, the, the major league coaching staff and the big league catchers, you know, that's the type of thing that you're going to see you know, hopefully some improvement on. So it'll be interesting because 52 innings is not a big sample, but he no. was dynamic. I think his, I think his K to nine was the highest single season uh, rate for starter for an Indian starter in team history. If you if you go with anyone who had, I think like three or more starts in a season, you know, that's pretty incredible. Mm. I think number two on the list was Bob Feller back in like 1946 or 39 or something back there. <laughs> I don't remember off the top of my head, but. You know, he's a guy that I think uh, you know the Indian fans are pretty excited to see what he can do over a full slate. You know, especially like I said, after they gave up uh, or they let so many Indians walk away mm-hmm. on the free agent market. So last year, Jason Kipnis established himself as one of the better second basemen in all of baseball. There has been some talk of the tribe extending him. He's a year away from arbitration. How much would Cleveland be able to spend on him? Would they be able to buy out more than one or two free agent years? Yeah, you know, I've seen various kind of uh, articles trying to break it down or, or, or what he might be worth over an extension. And, you know, I kind of agree with the range that they're saying, you know, if it were to be an extension for right now and, you know, he looked at like a six-year deal, maybe $35, 37000000 million. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, – I don't think there's this sense of urgency. You know, I think the, the urgency would be obviously to lock him up and – avoid, you know, having this guy hit the free agent market and things like that. But there's such a long way away from that aspect because he doesn't hit arbitration until next year. So I think it's a good step that they initiated talks uh, two off seasons ago 
uh, and have revisited it this spring. But, you know, as they showed with Brantley, they kind of waited until he was in that first arbitration year because uh, when you sit down for ARB talks, it's a natural part of the negotiations to bring up multi-years. So I think that's something that they're looking at. And, you know, I don't know if they necessarily need to get something done this spring, um, but Kipnis has made it known that if they get to opening day and, they, you know, he hasn't signed the dotted line, and he doesn't want to talk about it during the season. So I think it's a good step for the team. You know, this is the type of uh, organization that needs to lock up the young talent. They're not going to be able to compete with the, the big boys when it comes to the free agent market unless there's opportunistic scenarios uh, like Nick Swisher and Michael Bourne where they had a protected pick, they had the extra uh, competitive balance pick, and they could kind of afford to let some picks go and still have a normal draft. That was a very uh, unique situation last winter where they, they had the funds and they had guys that fit the needs and they also had the type of draft pick situation where it would work out. So locking up some guys like Kipnis and Brantley, they did it with Santana. They bought out a couple of years with Cabrera a couple of years ago. Now, those are the things uh, that a team like Cleveland needs to do. That Santana contract is looking pretty awesome right now. Yeah, I mean, especially with what they're doing with him, you know, they're trying to convert him now into a so he's like the, he's like their amphibious vehicle. You know, he could be their backup catcher. He can go to third. He can go first. He could DH. You know, whatever wherever he's at. I, I think the important thing for them is to make sure you know he's in that lineup. He's got one of the, the best walk rates in, in Major League yeah. Baseball. So that come up and you know, he's a very important part of the heart of that lineup. Yeah, I watched him play third a few times um, when he was playing in the Dominican Winter League. He looked okay out there. He's got a pretty good arm. Uh, saw him make a few plays on balls that, that were hit well to his right, and then a couple of choppers that he had to charge. The low light came in the last game of the series when he made an error that allowed a run to score and ended up in what ended up being a one-run series-clinching loss. Uh, the Tribe has Lonnie Chisenhall set to start at third base. He managed a 500 slugging percentage against righties and. 2012, but was really killed by a 260 bat up against righties last year. He's had a lot of trouble mm-hmm. hitting lefties over his career, so it seems like the best option for Cleveland would be to play Chisenhall at third against righties and then Santana against on, uh, at third against lefties, maybe try to limit Santana's impact in the field by avoiding playing him when guys like Justin Masterson are on the mound, causing lots of ground balls. If Santana proves himself to be a competent third baseman this spring, how much could we really see him play this year? Yeah, I, I think you've brought up a lot of important points, and, and as you as you know, the Indians are, I believe they, they led the league in platoon at bats last year, and you know things like that. So this is a team that really values maximizing its offense in any way possible, uh, and I think that's something that's coming into play right now. At some point, you know Santana may prove to be the best option as an everyday third baseman. I don't think we're near that point. I think yeah. this is a guy who. Played a little third base as a minor leaguer in 2006 in the Dodgers system, and a guy who was athletic enough where he's looked comfortable and handled it so far in spring. But as you just mentioned, with Lonnie Chisholm and his drastic splits, albeit over his career, I believe it's only about uh, it's still under 700 plate appearances. So this yeah, is a guy who yeah. kind of had, you know, for some players, one full season spread across the course of his career. So that. But, but again, it's it's there. The drastic splits are there, and this is a team that's in win-now mode, not development mode. It, it, over the course of September, I believe they limited him to one at-bat against the left-handed pitcher, and he hit 270 with an over 900 OPS. So he's shown that when they use him in a specific manner, he can be a very valuable part of the team. So I think the likeliest scenario uh, at this moment, as we haven't seen Santana in games yet, 
uh, is probably a Chisholm Hall against uh, right-handed pitching and, and Santana against a tough lefty. You know, and I'm sure Chisholm Hall would be fine if Chris Sale and you know David Price faced Carlos Santana and he roots him yeah. on from the best. You know, I, I, you know, I think that's that's the scenario that you could see, and that's why right now it's also, I mean, they have Matt Trainer in camp as a backup catching option or a third catching option, um, but you know, San, uh, Francona values versatility along his bench so much, and the kind of versatility it can allow him to carry Giambi, uh, that Santana makes the most sense right now as the number two catcher and a part-time third baseman and also a guy who could spell guys at first base and DH and kind of keep staying in the lineup but maximizing the platoon advantage. If we had this conversation a year ago, we'd be very confused at why we're talking about Santana not playing catcher <laughs> for the Indians. Obviously, the reason for yeah. that is Jan Gomes. He uh, led all American League catchers in slugging percentage last year, threw out a ton of base runners, and put up some really good framing numbers, which is a place where Santana had been a disaster in previous years. Uh, when you add it all up, he was actually one of the five best players in baseball on a per-game basis. Uh, of course, all that came in just 322 plate appearances. What's he doing right. to ensure that he'll be able to keep that up over a full year with all the wear and tear of catching every day and the adjustments that pitchers are bound to make after they see him more and more? Well, I think what's important with uh, Gomes right now is that he is basically saying my offense doesn't matter. You know, he's really t- he's really embracing this defense first, uh, you know, working with the pitching staff, gaining the trust of the pitchers, being a leader for the team. Uh, you know, I think that's what he's embracing, and that's what the Indians want him to embrace mm-hmm. because this is a guy that was so valuable defensively, as you mentioned, with the framing, with stopping, just halting the running game. You know, and and, this, and it was incredible to see over the second half how uh, he really just took control and was a pivotal part of that team that was so strong through September and, you know, made the playoffs. So, you know, I think the, the focus for him right now is on the conditioning aspect of getting his body ready uh, mm-hmm. to handle the full workload because this is a guy who in Toronto is being used as a utility man, and this is a guy that Cleveland brought over here to be an everyday catcher. They didn't necessarily know it was going to be as quick as it happened, but they're thrilled that it did because it's opened up the possibility of utilizing Santana the way they're doing and things like that. So I think it's going to be uh, expected to see a natural regression uh, offensively for Gomes this year. I think the Indians are fine with that. He's not their three hitter. He's not their cleanup hitter. He's not their fifth hitter. He's going to be somewhere, you know, in the the sixth or lower aspect of their lineup, you know. But he's a guy who has the potential, you know, to be one of the the top catchers in the game if last season was any indication. So it's going to be an exciting guy to follow and watch. A guy that hasn't really been on a lot of radars. Um, I think this is going to be an important year for him. You know, he's he's the first Brazilian-born major leaguer, so that he carries that with pride. You know, I think, uh, you know, I see him working on the field and in the clubhouse, you know, sidling up the pitchers and talking with them, even on days they're not pitching. You know, this is a guy that's doing it behind the scenes the way uh, that seems like he's well beyond his years. I think that's a a very important thing that the the Indians have added to the mix. A guy that was considered the other guy in that trade that brought Mike Avila over. So the Tribe signed John Axford to be their closer. Um, when, they, when that happened, Francona talks about how he likes having Cody Allen in the setup role so that he can put him in whenever the Indians need out in an, outs in an important situation. While a smart manager can get a lot of value out of using a guy, a setup guy, well, 
Um, it's pretty rare that a setup guy ends up actually pitching in higher leverage situations than a closer does over a full season. Um, how much of the tribe's decision was based on wanting someone with closing experience, and how much are they trying to avoid letting Allen rack up some save numbers that would make him more expensive once he hits arbitration? <laughs> well, I mean, well, a team is never going to come out and say that. <laughs> yeah. But 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 as you as you know and understand uh, the dynamics of a team like Cleveland, as we've mentioned, you know, with locking up the young players and avoiding arbitration and things like that. While I don't think they would ever come out and say that, I I wouldn't be surprised if that is some of the the way it's worked behind closed doors of, you know, this is a guy who could be very valuable to us for a long time and wanting to make sure he's affordable for a long time. Uh, But beyond that, Francona comes, you know, he's very quick to say that many games are won and lost, not in the ninth inning, but in the seventh inning or in the eighth inning. And I think what he really valued with Allen last year, economics aside, was the fact that he could use him as a high-leverage pitcher when the game dictated. You know, he was kind of how he used Michael Brantley in the lineup where he could bounce up and down and be a protection guy. Cody Allen was, for all intents and purposes, the stopper in the bullpen last year uh, without being the closer. So he was a guy that would just kind of put out fires and, you know, things like that and, I think Francona really valued that in him, and I think that's why he wanted to keep him and Brian Shaw kind of in those roles where they're not necessarily tied to one specific inning. Well, I believe you'd probably see them in the seventh and eighth inning uh, primarily. You know, he, he wouldn't rule out using a guy earlier, you know, if, he's, if he names Allen the eighth inning guy, if the situation dictates using him in the seventh. You know, I think that's an important thing uh, for, for a team to do. You know, not be so so tied up on this guy's for this inning and this guy's for that inning. That said, the peripheral numbers do say that Axford is a strong bounce back candidate. Mm-hmm. You know, he had an ERA over four, but he gave up nine runs and four homers in his first three and the third innings of the season when his velocity was still down, which he believes was a result of kind of getting ramped up a little too early for the World Baseball Classic. So that's something that they looked at. They look at the fact that you know. If you, if you toss those first four games out for the next 71 games, I believe, and then the playoffs on top of that, you know, this is a guy that had a 280 RA over the course of the rest of the season and had velocity numbers that were pretty much on par, maybe a, a very slight dip from where he was in his prime with the Brewers. On top of that, when he went over to the Cardinals, you know, they, uh, you know, kind of informed him that he may or may not have been tipping pitches. Yeah. They said he was. He went back and looked at it. He believes he was, you know, and whether or not it gave him a mental boost or what, you know, he pitched great with the Cardinals, but he said he did make a mechanical adjustment after that, uh, and he believes it helped him. Uh, but he also had success in the past when he was doing what the Cardinals said he was doing. So but I, I think there's a lot of peripheral things that the Indians are buying into and the fact that, you know, he still has two years of con- contractual controllability mm-hmm. for the Indians, although – if you look at the situation based on what he's making, and if he had a, you know an awesome year, you, know, you might be looking at a non-tender situation naturally anyway next season. So, yeah, I, I think there, there's a lot of things that played into it. Maybe economics, maybe peripherals, maybe last year the way Frank going to use those guys. But I think they're pretty comfortable with the alignment that they have going into this year, kind of given the amount of turbulence they dealt with in the bullpen last season. All right. Well, it was great having you on the show. All right, anytime. It was good talking to you.
That was Jordan Bastion of MLB.com. You can read Jordan at Indians.com or follow him on Twitter at MLBastion. That's it for this week's season previews. Be sure to tune in for the listener email show tomorrow. And on Monday, we'll continue the series with the Milwaukee Brewers. Three, two, one. Good morning, and web. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fastest that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs>